Well, thank you, Dave, for one of the fun stories some of you have heard is that on the first day of Solano Community Church, 17 years ago, last Sunday, our building, the venue we were going to be worshiping in was closed down all of a sudden last minute because of maintenance issues. So we had to start the church in a living room of one of the people's houses. So we all crammed into this living room and I'd never seen this guy before, Dave Monk. And I'm leading worship. I used to lead worship uh, and preach and do a bunch of other things. Uh, and I'm sitting there and Dave was literally like right here. I mean, it was, it was like a little too close. I mean, you know, and I'm leading worship and singing like this and he's just bawling, you know, because <laughs> the Lord is working uh, in his life. And it was just, and then um, we just started on this journey. That's been such a blessing, Dave. And I'm so thankful to be able to share it with you. And I'm so thankful to see how God continues to, um, cause your story to morph and move and grow and expand and touch other people's lives. And uh, I've sent many people to Dave, um, you know, to, to be encouraged and counseled. And, and um, I know God's going to keep using, like you said, this story in your life to, to minister to many. So praise God for that. And I want to call out, too, that um, if something, there's a lot about shame in, in Dave's story. And there's a kind of a Venn diagram between sin and shame. They're connected in complicated ways oftentimes. And if there's something there that, you know, is being tugged on in your heart, um, I want to encourage you to, to go. We did a series on shame uh, in 2019, uh, March and April. So you can look that up on the podcast. And I think that's another resource. In addition to contacting Pastor Paul, um, that's another resource that might be helpful for you in that. Um, good. Well, Lord, would you uh, use the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts? Would you make them acceptable in your sight? You are our rock and our redeemer, and we can't be more thankful for that. So please help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we do worship a God who frees people from enslavements, and we know that people are enslaved in myriad ways all around us. Um, some of those enslavements are physical, and some of them are spiritual. Um, on the physical side, uh, I was reading this week that from the website 50 for Freedom, there are more people in slavery today than at any other time in history. More than 40 million people around the world were victims of modern slavery in 2016, including about 25 million in forced labor and 15 million in forced marriages. And I just want to call out that it's really important for us as Christians not to make too great of a separation between uh, physical slavery and spiritual slavery. If you go back to pre-Civil War, we think about that time period, and one of the great travesties was that you had white Christians who were preaching freedom from spiritual slavery while they were holding physical slaves. And so that inconsistency runs contrary to the gospel. And on some, to some degree, that could be true today as we recognize that there are so many people in slavery around the world right now, and it is incumbent upon us if we are about freedom to help them be freed. And so I just want to throw out there, uh, maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting somebody, um, but if, if you felt led to help us as a church think through how we might encourage those and help those who are enslaved around the world, there's a number of amazing organizations that do that work. We used to have a ministry around that. We don't currently. But if you felt led 
led or are just curious about exploring what it would take to maybe help us um, do work in that area, then I want to encourage you to talk to Miguel. Um, he's in charge of our agape teams. This would be an agape team. And so uh, I just want to throw that out there and see what the Lord does with it. Um, I trust his timing and calling on, on people's lives. So um, that's an important element. We're going to talk a lot today about the spiritual side of slavery, but I didn't want to ignore um, both. In fact, we're going to talk about the physical and the spiritual because we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at um, Israel being freed from bondage, physical bondage in Egypt, as BK read the passage. And then we're going to look at how the New Testament takes that, that physical bondage and then drives it deeper and brings in so many of the more spiritual elements to slavery and enslavement. Uh, and then hopefully learn some lessons that we can keep with us in that. And I just want to remind you, I mean, isn't there something incredible about being freed? Think of your own life and think about the times when you felt trapped. Think about, uh, you know, and, and for, for, for most of us, we, we probably haven't experienced the kind of, you know, physical slavery that's been sadly such a part of history. But think of those times when you have felt trapped and when suddenly you were freed and the sense of fresh that that brought, the, the breath of fresh air, the, the cool, you know, freedom that comes uh, in those moments. There's something glorious that touches deeply uh, in this, the, what it means to be a human being, to be freed. And so we're in the area of sweetness here when we talk about freedom. And so in order for us to connect it to our lives, we need to take a moment and grapple with slavery itself. And what kinds of spiritual slaveries are there? There are three, at least, spiritual slaveries that are called out in the New Testament. And I want to just briefly go through those. We're going to kind of do a little bit of the heavy lifting right up front in the sermon today. So put on your thinking cap, open up your Bible. We're going to dig through a couple of of, uh, passages here. The first spiritual slavery is called slavery to sin. And uh, Jesus makes it plain in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, this includes dramatic things like, you know, breaking some of the, the core Ten Commandments, killing, stealing, abusing, and some of the outward things like fits of rage. Um, but it also includes what we might call more the more subtle uh, enslavements, like enslavement to, to bitterness, right? You carry around this, this, this bitterness with you, and you, you can't seem to shake it, and it colors, it colors everything in your life, or, or jealousy, or rivalries, or, or gossip. You just can't help yourself from revealing information about somebody else that was really their story to tell. And you, you find that you keep doing it, and you're, you, you can't break the habit. And you walk away frustrated with what you've done. It's an enslavement to sin. Slander and arrogance. Many of the great Christians of the past talked about the hold that pride had on their lives. And how it was so difficult for them to break the shackles of pride. And so um, we know that this is a battle that many of us face. Probably all of us to some degree. C.S. Lewis said that you know, pride's really at the heart of all of sin. So pride, uh, divisions, all kinds of things can enslave us. And for us, this is like our Egypt. This is like being captured and held in Egypt, just like the story of the Israelites. And you know that sense of being in prison, being imprisoned by sin. Jesus calls it out. It's called out throughout the scripture. It's the first kind of slavery, slavery to sin. The second spiritual slavery I want to call out is slavery to the law. Slavery to the law. Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, 
We were held captive. There's the word of slavery. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In the letter to the Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul explains how the law of God is written on our hearts. Um, And that's why we find that essentially in cultures uh, all across the world throughout all time, a sense of right and wrong is basically aimed in, 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 in a similar direction. Uh, because God's law is written on the heart. Every human image bearer comes standard equipped with a sense of right and wrong that is placed there by God. That's what it, we learn in the book of Romans. And we even have a, 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 a conscience that sounds the alarm whenever we trespass, whenever we cross over that sense of right and wrong that's inside of us. And so many of us spend a good portion of our tri- time trying to avoid that alarm bell of our conscience going off because it's uncomfortable. And we do that by trying to do the right thing all the time in our own strength. And Paul would say at that point that we are enslaved to the law. We are, we are hanging our sense of value and worth and identity on our ability to comply with God's law. Now, God's law is wonderful, and it gives us a guidance for how we grow, and it it provides a hedge for chaos in the world. But when we're using God's law in this way, then we find it's it's unsuccessful. We We can't achieve what we hope to achieve, and we find ourselves enslaved to it. Now, they're usually, uh, for those of us who are living in that kind of um, vein, there's a moment when we realize we can't meet the demands of the law. We, we, we try and try and try, and then we come to the point where we say, you know what, I just can't do it. I can't comply with God's law, and so I'm just going to throw up my hands and give up completely. And then we run off and uh, run into the direction of enslavement back to sin. So enslavement to sin and enslavement to, to law are really two sides of the same coin. See, they're two sides of the same coin and we, we carry them between the two of them, seeking to fulfill the law to, in our own strength and then failing to do so, we give up and we run back to the enslavements of sin and, and it's, it's really a terrible way to live, careening between these two poles. All right, the third slavery is closely related to the second one. It it also is a kind of slavery to a law, but this is slavery to human institutions. So these aren't laws that come directly from God. They're the ones that come from uh, human tradition or from philosophy. You see it oftentimes in sort of like the spirit of the the age. There will be all kinds of burdens that our culture lays on us to say, this is how things are supposed to be done. And we feel those as laws and we can end up enslaved to them. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by, again, there's that word captive, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So slavery too refers to enslavement to God's law, uh, the law that's written on our hearts and that we find in the Ten Commandments especially and then throughout the commandments of the Old Testament. Slavery three refers to enslavements to human laws and human institutions, human traditions and philosophies of the world. So let's say you lived in an area of the country, you know, where there were certain trends and everybody expected you to live by those trends, to drive certain kinds of cars or to separate your trash, 
in particular ways. Or, you know, not to speak in a certain kind, using certain kind of language. And the, the list goes on and on. And, and the, the point is not that those things are bad. I mean, the, the, the testimony of Scripture is that God's creation is beautiful and wonderful, and we ought to take care of it. In fact, I hope we can div, dig into that teaching a little bit more in the coming months and years. It's very important. And yet, if that becomes the lens through which we determine our own value before God and others, or by which people determine our value as they judge us, then we are being enslaved to a human tradition. You see that? So we, we, we need to understand the way that these work together, and uh, they're layered, and they actually leave us with a sense that life is impossible on some level. I think of the image of an abused dog. Right, who's been kicked and beaten just one too many times and they're cowering in the corner because they can, they can never succeed. And life according to the law is like that. It's the law in this vein is, is abusive towards us. We can't ever measure up. In fact, Paul says this very clearly. He says the letter kills, referring to the law, but the spirit gives life. So as we think about freedom, we need to understand what exactly it is and how exactly we are, we are enslaved and captive, spiritually speaking. So a few questions that come out of the three types of spiritual slavery. What do you keep on doing even though you know you shouldn't? What do you keep on doing even though you know you shouldn't? That's enslavement to sin. What do you want to do but can't? And you experience that failure repeatedly throughout your life. That's enslavement to the law in a sense. And what demands does the world around you place on you that you cannot meet? Captive to human tradition, philosophy, empty deceit. So how has life by the law beaten you up and left you cowering in the corner is the question I want to kind of sit with in this first point. How has life left you in that space? And you just, you feel with a deep sigh that you'll never be able to measure up. And, and, and don't you realize, I mean, don't we realize how insidious this kind of thinking can be? We might think we're freed from the law, that we're living in grace, and all of a sudden we discover that, no, actually, we're beating ourselves up about X or Y or Z, or we're, we're allowing others to beat us up about X or Y or Z, and, we, and this is becoming a thing that's keeping us from God, keeping us from freedom, keeping us from our relationship with others. So it's really important for us to think through deeply the nature of our enslavements. I wish I could give lots more of examples, but I'm going to move on because the story of Exodus is the story of a people who are being freed from enslavement in a physical sense, right? You know the background that uh, Joseph ends up being sold into Egypt by his brothers in slavery. You wonder what's happening, but actually you learn later that God is working out a very amazing plan, and that is to have Joseph be there. He is first in prison, but he rises to power, and he is able um, to help uh, the Pharaoh hoard what is needed to endure the upcoming drought, and then he's able to bring his family to Egypt and thereby 
save this precious community that God has called out to be his people by placing them in Egypt where they become, Egypt becomes a kind of an incubator for them. And over the year, the years pass and Israel grows within the community of Egypt. But then a new Pharaoh comes and this Pharaoh is intimidated by Israel because they've grown so large. And so he begins to enslave them. And so for a long period of years, Israel is enslaved by the Egyptians. And then Moses comes along with a call by God to break them out of that enslavement which they've been enduring. They've been, they've been making bricks. They have been, you know, eating poorly. They have been um, harmed physically. They've been living in enslavement. And Moses comes to break them out. And of course, the plagues, the story of the plagues happens there, which is, which is how God breaks them free from Egypt. And then they leave and there's that really important moment where the military, the Egyptian soldiers are behind them, chasing them. And there they are before the Red Sea. It seems like all is lost. And God parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites go down into what was the Red Sea, but is now dry land. They pass through it and come up on the other side. And as the Israel, the Egyptian soldiers go in, God closes the water back on them and they disappear. They're destroyed and the Israelites find themselves freed on the other side of the Red Sea. And the next chapter is a beautiful chapter of celebration. And this story, which is a very physical story, ends up being the mental furniture that's used over and over again in the New Testament to help us understand another exodus that is perhaps even more wonderful and spectacular than that one. So we see all throughout the New Testament, right in the beginning of the book of Matthew, the reference to Jesus, out of Egypt I have brought my son, which is, a refer- which, which is being applied to Jesus Christ. So you see the sort of the, 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 the mental furniture that goes with the exodus being applied to the life of Jesus. Um, In the book of Hebrews, um, Jesus is referred to as the greater Moses, right? So he's leading the people through another kind of exodus. Um, And then um, you you have the the, the language all throughout of the Passover lamb. Many Many of the symbols that go along with the exodus take on new and deeper spiritual meaning in the New Testament. So there's a, there's a kind of an exodus that's, that, that the shadow and the echoes of it are there in the Old Testament. And then we see it in the New Testament in all of its depth and richness and power and spiritual nature and glory. And one of the passages that I love the most is in Luke chapter 9 in the, what's called commonly the transfiguration of Jesus where the disciples, if you remember, They get to see Jesus for a moment in his glorified body, his resurrected body, and they get to to have a kind of a conversation. And let me read to you um, part of that because it's closely tied to this whole notion of the exodus. By the way, the exodus means, exodus means a way out. That's what it means, a way out. So don't think of it as some complicated biblical term that's opaque to you. It just means way out way out. So when they were standing before the Red Sea, they needed a way out, right? And the the way out happened. The exodus happened. All right. So Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, 
he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses, surprise, and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now the word in Greek is, you guessed it, exodus. Literally exodus, okay? Of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what was he about to accomplish in Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem, he was going to, as the, as the New Testament says, become sin, to become sin himself, to allow him sin to be killed on the cross, and then to rise again. He was vanquishing the slave master. Just as Moses had done with Egypt, Jesus is doing with our slave master, sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By becoming sin and then being killed on that cross, he was doing away with sin. Just like Moses had done with the slavery and the Pharaoh in Egypt. But then what happens next? Then he leads us out of death. Just as the Israelites led by Moses went down into the Red Sea and then came back out again on the other side. In the same way, Jesus is leading his people down into the sea of death. Now, the, the whole symbi- symbolism around the sea during, you know, the the biblical times was that it was mysterious and dark and death-like. So it's a foreshadowing of the death out of which Jesus is leading us. He leads them through the sea and then they come out the other side just as Jesus is leading his people, the people in Christ, through the sea of death and out to the other side to freedom. They emerge on the other side from, in freedom. We think of the resurrection so often as um, isolated to Jesus Christ, right? I mean, I, I do, maybe you do too. We think of Jesus, oh, isn't that amazing that Jesus went on the cross and they put him in the tomb and then he was raised by God from the dead. But actually, an appropriate way to think about the resurrection of Jesus is is to think of Moses leading the people through the Red Sea and then out the other side of freedom. He's just the first one. Jesus is just the first one to go through. First one to walk through the way out. The exodus to the other side. To the side of freedom. You don't have to live in the slavery of Egypt. You can live in the freedom of the other side. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to live in the slavery of sin. You can live in the freedom of the other side. And in real terms, just because there's a lot of metaphor and imagery I know associated with this, what we're talking about this morning, let me try to put it in real, in real terms. That means you no longer have to seek justification as a human being by your ability to avoid lawlessness or embrace compliance. 
So you don't have to seek value, justification before God and any other sense of worth by your ability either to comply with the law or avoid doing what's wrong. Okay? That's, that's what you're freed from. And that's the glorious, cool evening, night air that you walk out into after you... The, this is the worst example, but I used to work in a restaurant when I was in college. And it was hot and sticky and tense and stressful. And I still remember those moments at the end of the night when I would finally punch out of the clock. And I would walk out of the restaurant and it was in Santa Barbara, and the air would just come upon me. I had all this grease on me, and it's just cool and refreshing. That's what it's like to walk out of slavery, right? To walk into the cool, refreshing air. And the church, let me say this, the church is a community where this powerful truth gets teased out and lived out and mirrored and repeated. You heard the story of Dave Monk sharing his testimony. And what are we doing as a church? Over and over again, we're repeating back to Dave, look, this is who you are in Christ. Chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, sealed, child, son of God. That's who you are. That's what we, when we come together as the church, we celebrate that truth. Just like when the Israelites came up out of the Red see and ended up on the other side the next chapter is a whole chapter of their celebration that's what church is church is coming together on the other side of the red sea to celebrate each other to pat each other on the back and say look we made it we don't go and say how come you're not break making bricks again is this is what we do in church sometimes right we've been freed but then we seek to hold each other in bond. There's, there's more judgment in the church oftentimes than there needs to be, than there ought to be, if we were lining, aligning ourselves with the, the pure gospel. We, we want to come back and say, the day after we've come through the Red Sea, we come back and say, how come you're not making bricks? The church is supposed to be that place of freedom and grace where we're, we're gathering together to celebrate that we have been brought through, that we have found a way out. And that's extremely important in terms of the posture and the vibe of a church community, saturated in grace and freedom. High fives, cheering, patting each other on the back. That's what we're doing when we gather together to sing praises. We're blown away because we have been brought through. We've been given an exodus, a way out. And it's remarkable. All right, but freedom, this is the thing. Freedom is great, but what's even more amazing is what comes in addition to freedom. Freedom is not entirely safe because, because sin. Freedom often results in new enslavements. You've experienced this before where you, you got rid of something in your life and then replaced it with something else that was equally damaging or maybe a little less damaging, but it's still an enslavement, right? And, 
um, we replace our old idols with new idols, our old laws with new laws, our old addictions with new addictions. It reminds me of Matthew 12, 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation or if you want another image think of the israelites coming up out of the red sea and and they didn't what did they do with their freedom they disobeyed and so then what happened they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years right so there's like freedom is not quite enough for us we don't know what to do with freedom it's overwhelming In order to enjoy our freedom, we need something greater than freedom. So look with me in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but free? No. You are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. We've seen this before recently, that you can have a word that has multiple opposites. So is the opposite of slavery freedom? Yes. But also, especially in biblical times, the opposite of slavery is sonship and daughterhood. So you'd have in a family, you would have slaves present and you would have sons and daughters. And there was a huge distinction between them. Now, what's remarkable, we've been able to look and research at, you know, documents talking about adoption in New Testament times. And what has emerged in that study is that adoption, being an adopted child was exactly the same as being a natural born child. That the way you were treated in the family was exactly the same. There were no differences. You weren't a second-class citizen. When you were adopted, you were 100% a child, just as if you were natural born. So this is really important for us. You and I need more than merely freedom. Freedom just means new and different trouble for many of us. What we need is a God who cares so much that he doesn't just make us free, he makes us children. He doesn't just make us free, he makes us His children. I was so blessed to spend some time with a friend from seminary a couple of weeks ago. He was out visiting. Hadn't seen him since seminary because the day we graduated, he got on a plane basically and flew to Uzbekistan. And he's been ministering in Uzbekistan. And then he got kicked out. And he went to Tajikistan. He's been ministering in Tajikistan. And we just had a sweet time together, catching up, talking. I remember though, a story about 20 years ago, he was um, with his wife. They were unable to conceive children and they decided that they would go and adopt two boys from an orphanage in Russia. And they brought these boys to Uzbekistan. And then it was so sweet to hear the story of how they raised these two boys. They're now, you know, 
20 around there and uh, doing great. I mean, you know, figuring out life, but, but they, the way that, that my friend and his wife have been able to nurture these two boys over the last 20 years is just remarkable and amazing and beautiful. Now, what if they would have taken those two boys out of the orphanage, taken them to Uzbekistan and then just let them go? Like, you know, roam around the mountains of Uzbekistan. We would think that's crazy, right? I mean, that's freedom. That's freedom. See, that's why freedom isn't enough. We need adoption. We need somebody who loves us so much that will come around us and help us live, help us figure out how to live, help us, help us walk through the challenges and the struggles of life. And that's who our God is. You are free but if you really want to live into your freedom, understand that you were adopted. And that adoption provides the appropriate guidance within the freedom to give you, to enable you actually to enjoy the freedom long term. Without that, then you'll self-destruct. So my application is really simple. It's this. Be the child that you are. Sometimes we give like 14 to-dos, you know, as our application. Sometimes we just got to get the right framework for looking at who we are and who God is. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You are a little child. Adopted by God. Chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, sealed by God. That's who you are. And to the extent that you allow that powerful truth to shape the way that you think about yourself, you will be transformed. You will experience freedom and joy and life. So Lord, help us, we ask, simply just to absorb this beautiful truth, both that we're, the two truths, that we're free, but we're also adopted. Help us to live into our sonship, and our daughterhood today, tomorrow, the next. Help us to, you know, not be the kind of children who don't call home and, and try to do everything on their own, but who communicate with you in prayer, want to know what your wisdom is, and want to do life with you, that we might enjoy this freedom you've given us. In Christ's name we pray.